Hello and welcome back, Devils fans and hockey fans, and welcome back to the NHL. As it seems we have hockey on our horizon, it may not be Devils hockey, but it's still going to be great to watch. As the hub cities of Toronto and Edmonton will play host to the NHL's return to play format. And we got that official announcement um, last week. We also got a lot of Devils-based news in the last couple of days. So here to help me make sense of all of it is John Fisher. How are you today, John? I'm doing well, as we have a lot to go through. Yeah, this is a busy day on the agenda. And last week we were saying, you know, maybe we'll turn to this quadruple overtime classic between Hashik and Brodeur if we are lacking for content. Needless to say, right after we recorded that, we were no longer lacking for content. <laughs> there was a lot no. of news that came out almost immediately. And I watched Hamilton last weekend, so I'm going to make some references to you. Labor peace in our time in the NHL feels like the world has been turned upside down. It feels like they did not need to get to the very end of the CBA to extend the labor agreement and modified version uh, as per the coronavirus guidelines. And also in the room where it happened, no one was there because this negotiation took place over Zoom and yet it was the most successful one they've had in a very long time. So let's start there because that has implications for the whole league. What does labor peace for the next you know, six or seven years basically mean for the NHL and the way it's, it's going to you know, compared to the rest of the sports world, especially after this crisis. It's absolutely astounding. And just to give you a bit of background, Dan, you know, I'm 37 years old. I started following the NHL being a Devils fan at around 1993, 1994. So for my entire life as a hockey fan, Dan, you could set your watch to the CBA is about to expire. There would be some type of a lockout, mm -hmm. whether it was the half a season in 1995, the fight over the salary cap um, that burned an entire season in 2004, 2005. We lost roughly half the season in 2012. So, you know, there was always some level of strife under the Gary Bettman era of NHL commissioner. So the fact is you see other sports where things have been very contentious between the labor unions and the owners as they navigate the realities of the coronavirus and on top of other financial realities of their sport the NHL does the exact opposite and just says, you know what? We're not going to wait until 2022 to uh, freak out and uh, try to get a new CBA together. Let's sort this out now. And I'm absolutely pleased that for the first time as a hockey fan, Dan, I do not have to, we're going to be going 10 seasons without a lockout. Yeah. That's like amazing news. Right now, that being said, the, the big reason, the other big reason why we're, we should really be happy this in terms of a macro league level, uh, viewpoint is that in 2022 Seattle would have been just getting off the ground as a new franchise getting up to 32 teams and the national television contracts uh, the national broadcast contracts I should say um, were also going to be due up for negotiations and the last thing you want to have in, in cases of both is a lockout <laughs> yeah. you, you know you know you know stopping the hockey as you're trying to convince people to pay you a lot of money and I mean a lot of money to broadcast said hockey on top of having a brand new expansion team trying to get their uh, their legs under them. I don't I, I wouldn't anticipate another Las Vegas situation where they're just going to hit the ground running and be an absolute success right from day one. Mm -hmm. Although that could happen. It could totally happen. Um, it's possible. It's just well, not likely. It's not likely. So the, the last thing you want is some type of labor strife to completely kneecap whatever progress you were making going into those sessions. So now you don't have to worry about this. 
you you may have to worry about in 2026, but 2026 is literally six years away. And by that point, a lot of things can change in addition to new teams. You know, Gary Bettman is 68. Donald Fair is 71. Like we could have brand new people as commissioner and NHLPA um, head in those respects. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, we could have a completely different conversation about how they're approaching things. And of course, thanks to the coronavirus, who knows what the economy is going to look like over the next six right, years. Right. And who knows how people are going to approach going back to hockey games, going back and spending lots of money because um, and this is going to be, I guess, a good segue to dive into the details of what's changed in the CBA. um, Well, I also want to point out the dimension that the NHL does have the benefit of Canada existing as a place where they can run their business in a way that they don't lose a lot of revenue. A lot of the other sports leagues have at most one team in Canada, so they don't have you know the same luxury, the same revenue stream coming from a country that has handled the virus crisis seemingly a lot better than we have. True. However, we have to keep in mind that the NHL's revenue – uh, hockey-related revenue was a little under $5 billion, and that all wasn't from Canada. No, and a no. lot of that is actually driven by the gate, as in people going to games, people mm-hmm. buying merchandise at games, people paying way too much money for beer and candy and food at the game, you know, mm-hmm. and whatever other additional um, revenue streams that teams may or may not have, whether, whether it's owning the building, whether it's parking, whether it's other initiatives. Um, until you start having people back in the arena, you're not going to get back to where we were before the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. That being said, you do raise a good point. The NHL does have the advantage of having a country that has not been hit as hard by the pandemic and has handled the pandemic arguably better than where we are in America. But that being said, at some point, people got to get back in the arenas. And I'm, I'm hesitant, you know, sitting here in North Jersey, you're more Northeast than I am. Um, it remains to be seen, you know, how quickly will people be willing to go back and will people be able to afford going back mm-hmm. uh, when that happens? But from a macro point of view, last last Friday's announcement that the CBA and the return to play format were ratified is nothing but fantastic news. It's there's really no downside to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's delve into some of these details, which include a lot of exciting things across the many dimensions of hockey. We have updates to the free agency period. We have updates to escrow. We have updates to Olympic participation. There's a lot of uh, cool little details in here that I think have addressed a lot of issues that players have brought up, especially during this time. And I think they've come up with a few elegant solutions in terms of um, delaying the in the way that they're giving the players their money uh, albeit delayed but they're still they still have a plan to pay everyone back for um you know the the wages cut during this crisis yes so and that's why some of the other sports there's been a lot more contentiousness because uh, essentially the owners are saying look we're not making any money and even when we get back to our arenas we're not going to make a lot of money so give us some money back and the players are rightfully saying no mm-hmm. you agreed to pay us this now hockey is a little the nhl i should say is a little different where the nhl and uh, as a league and the players association as the union they share the hockey related revenue 50 50 and that's why escrow is basically a big big issue because if it's not 50 50 then you know escrow comes into play um so now granted i'm glad that they came to an agreement because my you know you hear the word on the street if they did nothing let's say they did nothing at all dan they didn't return to play they weren't going to do anything your salary cap could have fell down to the to the 60 million range Mm -hmm. and escrow could have been as high as like 45 percent meaning the owners would be unhappy and the players would be unhappy and 
everybody would be unhappy. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. They came up with an elegant solution. Um, the, with respect to the wages, players are going to be deferring 10% of their salary and bonus money uh, for next season, but they're going to have it paid back in equal installments in the last three years of this current CBA. So from 2023 to 2024 to 25-25-26, they're going to get their money back. So it's really more of a loan than anything else. Um, the big thing um, with respect to the Devils, especially, is the salary cap is going to stay flat mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. $1.5 million. And this is crucial, Dan. Now, if it gets above, I think it's uh, $3.8 billion or some there's some midway point where if revenues increase above three point uh, before $4 billion, the salary cap can go can possibly go up a million dollars with union approval. But the big number that everyone's going to want to reach for is $4.8 billion. Because at that point, then we go back to where we currently have had our current situation with the salary cap, where that would rise appropriately and you go back to the old way of doing things. So $4.8 billion of hockey-related revenue is how you would know the NHL is back to what they consider normalcy. But until then, it's going to stay flat. And that means teams like the Devils, who have the least amount of cap – I'm sorry, the the lowest cap hit of all 31 teams right now – as of this discussion, um, they have a huge advantage over the many teams that are already up against 80, $81 million right now and maybe very close to $81 million next season, like Arizona, like Toronto, like Dallas, like St. Louis, like Vancouver, like Philadelphia, Washington, like Chicago. Washington, Tampa. Yeah, Washington, Tampa. I mean, we already have— The Rangers are pretty close, aren't they? No, the Rangers are actually fairly, fairly healthy at okay. the moment. Um, and I mean, they're going to go into next season with $67 million on the cap. If they do nothing else, of course, they have some big names to resign like, uh, Tony D mm. Ryan Strom, Brendan Lemieux. They're all, uh, pending RFAs, what they're going to do with their goaltending situation. Um, but, uh, they're, they're in a fairly healthy situation compared to say Arizona, which I don't know how they did this, Dan. <laughs> yeah. Just I a few years how. ago, they were taking on Marion Hosa's contract for the cap floor. They still have it. Like he's still <laughs> LTIR for another year. So I guess they can get some relief. But they, per cap friendly, they have $79.99 million committed to the cap next season already. And that's, and I'm assuming that assumes Jacob Chitrin counts in, in their numbers. He's on IR as well right now. But I, I'm literally looking at this and it's like, even if they want to re sign Taylor Hall, even if Taylor Hall wants to re sign there, where are you going to find the money? Because you decided to pay Nick Schmaltz nearly six million dollars for you know the next five six seasons i don't i don't know how it's just interesting to me that a player can count against a team's salary cap and still be voted into the hall of fame that same year well welcome to the realities of the salary cap (laughs) yeah well anyway there you go anyway a team like new jersey is in a position that if if tom fitzgerald is clever enough dan they could appropriately for lack of a better term weaponize their cap space and take advantage of some teams that don't really have it and make their team better in the process. And that's that's really the big thing the Devils need to really plan for as they enter this uh, modified offseason that they're uh, currently in. And we've heard weaponized cap space. That's very much the ratio of philosophy. And he, in a lot of ways, you know, the moves he made on paper were embodying that. It just didn't, they didn't yeah. work out on the ice. And yeah. I mean, we liked them when they happened, exactly. but it didn't work out. Right, right. And, you know, that's something that... I think the principle was strong enough that they should try moves like that again with this ample cap space that they have, but 
it's a little bit of a different perspective on what they're looking for between Fitzgerald and the new team that he sets up uh, in terms of scouting, in terms of you know both pro and amateur. Um, they've, they've got a lot of changes going on, but the philosophy of using that cap space as you're talking about, it shouldn't have to change. There's a lot of vulnerable players, and this is the same philosophy that got the Devils players like Kyle Palmieri, players like uh, Marcus mm-hmm. Johansson, P.K. Subban. Yep. So, Absolutely. So it's, you know, they, they have to keep working on this aspect, especially when they get the benefit of being one of the teams that can take advantage of this aspect of the CBA. But before we delve too deep into the Devils and what they'll be doing, let's just go over uh, some of the other parts of the CBA itself, because there's uh, one thing that also happened for players that the minimum wages have been raised. Yes. And I think this is a big reason why uh, the players voted widely in approval like you know you know speaking from cynicism you know past lockouts uh when i you you hear that this was going to go to a full union vote every player got their say they voted electronically you're thinking oh don't let this be like 51 49 in favor you know because that means that there's a lot of contentiousness it turned out to be like 79 percent approval and i think a big reason for that is that minimum salary increase so it's going to be seven hundred fifty thousand dollars over the next four seasons so that's your minimum number and then it's going to get bumped up uh, to 775 in 24-25, and then it's going to be a cool 800K in 25-26 at the last year of this extension. So if you're a minimum salary player, you just got a raise. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a nice bump, and I think that is definitely one of the reasons the players were so, um, so for this extension in the manner in which it was presented. But it wasn't the only reason, I would say. I mean, it's great to have the no. increase in... Uh, minimum wage for the newer players coming in but i think the older players were concerned about the next two things that we talk about in terms of player trades where the devils were actually able to use this with pk suban as uh, nashville traded him away 48 hours before his no trade clause would kick in that came over with him from montreal that's no longer the case if a player waves his no trade from one team it holds in their contract that goes to the next team right so because in the past, you know, if you get if you waive it, they just say, well, you waived it. It's now waived. Mm-hmm. Now, the good. Now, this is another area where the Devils could take some advantage here because they don't have a lot of players with uh, no trade clauses. They have Travis Zajac, who has a no trade clause, but he's 35. He's got he, he's got one season left on his current deal in 2021. I can't imagine there's going to be a lot of people trading for Travis Zajac. Um, Corey Schneider has a no trade clause, but with his six million dollar cap hit. No, no, no. I highly doubt anybody's going to be looking to take that on. And then there's Kyle Palmieri, who has a modified no trade clause where he gets to submit an eight team no trade list, which which just means he has a he can be traded. It's just he gets to decide he gets to have a say in where he somewhat can of a go. say. Yeah, somewhat of a say. So and, he, and like Zajac, he also has one year left on his contract anyway. So if you really, really want Palmieri and you know he wants out of New Jersey. You may opt to wait until he hits the market as a 31-year-old in two years, mm-hmm. um, or rather in one year, I should say. Look, the point is, <laughs> is that the point is I may not be able to know how to count all the time, but the point is, is that the Devils don't have a lot of players with a clause that's going to tie them up, and likewise, it's not going to hinder them if they want if Tom Fitzgerald wants to turn around and radically rechange this entire roster. Compare that to some other teams where they got no trade clauses out of the wazoo, and even if they get their team their players to waive them, you know the other team may say, "Well, I don't want this guy because he has a no trade clause." So, too bad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so so it definitely gives you more protection as a player that the the clauses have a little more teeth to it as I read it. Um, 
Speaking of more teeth, um, uh, where's this going? <laughs> yeah, I actually, I actually blank blank. Speaking on this. of more teeth, you know where else they have teeth in other countries? Yeah. And what thank we... <laughs> you. Yes, I, that's where I was actually like, I blanked as like, how do I connect this? To there the you inter- go. To so the international I, game. <laughs> I think one of the biggest draws for players when considering this deal is Olympic participation in 2022 yes. and 2026. This is a huge huge deal every player that talked about the world cup of hockey loved it and the only reason it existed was because the they were no longer participating in the olympics i mean i can't imagine that anyone who gets to participate in the olympics playing hockey doesn't love every second of it it's it's like something that they look forward to something that people actively try very very hard to get on the national team for and now as the hockey world kind of grows and expands and you can see it in the draft we have new teams that are full of um, nhlers from countries that weren't necessarily dominant for the beginning parts of international hockey but now you have countries like switzerland you have countries like germany on the Mm -hmm. come up and the international competition can only get more interesting from here on out yes and say what you want about the world championships every year but the olympics is a bigger stage it's a bigger you know, you get a lot more eyeballs on it. And from a pure fantasy standpoint, you know, you can finally answer the question of, in 2022 at least, you know, what would Team Canada look like with Sidney Crosby and Connor McDavid on their roster? Do you put them together? Do you split them up? You know, all, all, all little fun things like that. So you get an opportunity to do that. Now, granted, if the IIHF and the IOC decide to botch a negotiation <laughs> in the future – and don't put it past the IOC to do that because the IOC has proven many times that they do not care as long as they have the juice. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but, but you're absolutely right, Dan. You know, uh, if, if all things go well with that, um, they will be going to Beijing in 22 and they'll go to Milan in 2026. And that's a huge win for the players because the big reason for the NHL being against that is totally understandable. The NHL makes no money off of it. They can't use anything from the Olympics to promote their players. So even if, as as I said, if Crosby and McDavid score a beautiful one-timer two-on-one rush to win a gold medal, like neither Pittsburgh or Edmonton can advertise <laughs> that. The NHL cannot advertise that. Only the Olympics can advertise mm-hmm. that. So it's like... You know, six or half dozen. So they basically get nothing out of this. But they basically said, look, you want the Olympics here. You love going to play internationally. Here's the Olympics. Go. The the Olympics is a big legacy piece. There's people that, you know, when we talk about the triple goal club for players, there's not that many players that have that uh, Stanley Cup championship, world championship and Olympic medal. And that Olympic medal is as big a piece as the other two, I'd say. I'd say, you know. World Championship, because it happens every year, yeah, you get to represent your national team or national pride, but it's not necessarily the best of the best. People opt out no, of the World Championship constantly. And yeah, when they're and, in the playoffs, the... they can't participate. Exactly. Thank you. You said the piece I was about to say, like, if your team's really good and going for a cup, you ain't you ain't leaving the team to go play in an international tournament in, like, you know— Slovakia. Yeah, but you're, in the you're, Olympics, you're going to play for the cup. it's a, in the Olympics. It's a completely different story. Everyone wants to go to make the best team possible. I mean, this is no longer you know USA basketball. Whoever goes can pretty much just run over everyone. It doesn't really matter if all the best players go to the Olympics for basketball from the U.S. perspective, but it does matter from a hockey perspective from the U.S. for Canada for Russia. There's a lot oh, yeah. of pride here, and a lot of players that actually earn contracts based on their play in this tournament. A lot of players that people might not have heard of exactly so i mean this is again as i said this is another big win for the players and despite my terrible teeth segue that failed miserably (laughs) we saved it uh, 
We say I know we saved it, but you know it it still wasn't very good. It's like a one timer <laughs> from the half boards, and you know I guess thankfully Ron Hextall was in that. Um, but more seriously though, um, this CBA extension I would say is very player friendly. Like the players get a lot out of this here. Like they don't see their escrow shoot up like a rocket. Um, they will get their money back that they're deferring. They know when they're going to get it back. They know that uh, their trade clauses are going to be stronger. Their minimum salary is getting bumped up. Even the guys who are getting entry-level contracts, they have a potential raise there. They raise the maximum by a little bit. I think it's similar to the minimum salary. or something? It, it, it scales up over over time. Wow. I think it maxes out at a million, I think. Um, but the point is it's still a bump in pay for guys who are just entering the league, which is another – you know, if you're just entering the league, you're new to the union. Hey, you just got a raise, too. So, um, you know, the only thing that really, really hinders the players is that salary cap being flat. But again, given the circumstances, you can't say, you know, you can't you can't say I don't understand why that's the case until you have people start coming back and spending money normally. Hopefully with the broadcast contract, next broadcast contract, a lot more money comes into the NHL through that. Um you know, and of course, Seattle's a success. Um, you know that will only help as well. Um, but until then, your cap is going to stay set at eighty-one point five million, and that's arguably way better than the alternative of a massive cap reduction. Mm-hmm, definitely. There, there's two last pieces in the CBA I want to get to before we uh, take a quick break and talk about the Big Devils news. Um, one of them is probably a little more minor, but in terms of the free agent uh, tampering, quote unquote legal tampering period where they can start negotiating contracts before the official opening of free agency that is gone it was stupid it made no sense what is the point of that um it's gone negotiate when you have to and it doesn't mean that you have to sign a guy on july 1st or whatever the free agency date is which actually we'll get to right now but i'm going to say july 1st because that's generally when it happens yeah, once we get back to a normal season cycle, it'll stay as July 1st. So you don't necessarily have to sign a player exactly on July 1st. You don't have to do all your signings just to participate in the free agent frenzy. And I think that this tampering period was basically like kind of ruining the entire fun of that frenzy because everyone basically knew where a lot of players were going before the actual date happened. So I'd like this change a lot. Uh, I'm not a big fan of it just because it basically... The whole point why you added that period is because you knew everybody would be technically tampering anyway. So mm-hmm. it, it's like a classic case of, look, if you're not going to enforce it, then just allow it. You know, let's let's stop pretending it doesn't happen. So I, I feel like this is like, you know, it's like it's like liberalizing a law and then recriminalizing it. It's like, you know, I, I mean, I understand from a media standpoint it's more and a fan standpoint maybe more fun to wake up and you know it's 9 a.m you're getting your coffee you're eating your donut and then you spit your donut and spit your coffee out when you see that someone like i don't know kylo Okposo gets an eight-year contract <laughs> at seven million dollars per season no no offense to you mr Okposo. i'm just using you as an example um and i know you're not a free agent anytime soon because buffalo gave you way too much money earlier but the point is is that yeah, I get it. There's a lot more surprise and intrigue on uh, July 1st. And yeah, that could mean some bigger sightings on July 2nd and July 3rd and July 4th. But um, everybody's going to tamper. I think everybody does it. Yeah. Just accept it. I, I think like not making it an official period makes it much more interesting. Like if, if it's going on on the side, like I understand that because it's always going to happen anyway because you can't expect to do a big contract negotiation 
it like that quickly if you want to get involved yeah. on day one. But I'm fine with it officially being that no one can leak the results of the tampering until the actual free agent day because we knew where a lot of people were going by like June 28th last year. True. It, it like wasn't very interesting, and that to me, you know, that's not as interesting in the CBA as some of the dates that we had announced in terms of the return to play stuff. So this factors in because that tampering period before whenever free agency would start is gone. But why don't you hit us with the, um, the tentative dates that the NHL has. And of course, all of this as everything else this year is subject to change, depending on how uh, things progress in the fight against the virus. But give us some of those dates that we'll be experiencing in terms of, when the NHL might come back and when the important offseason dates might happen. Right. So here are the dates that the league has announced. And again, a lot of this is tentative because, again, the virus. And of course, now that we're going to have games, uh, games that decide series, there's going to be some tentative natures here. So um, first and foremost, the plan from the NHL is that the games are going to begin on August 1st. So we so training camp, I believe, is going to start in this coming week, if not already. And then they're going to do their training camp, maybe have one exhibition game, and then they're going to head on up to the bubble, uh, the hub cities, and then start preparing to play for August 1st. And then from August 1st to August 9th, Dan, Mm -hmm. and this is key, there's going to be either five or six games played every day. So if you're stuck at home or you're working from home, they haven't announced broadcast details, but there's going to be hockey literally on all day. Uh, whether it's a qualifying round game or one of the round robin games among the top four seeds in the conference. So if you love hockey, just watching hockey, you miss watching hockey, you're going to get a whole lot of hockey in the first nine days of August. And then on August 10th uh, is going to be the second phase of the NHL draft lottery, which is absolutely uh, of the devil's interest mm-hmm. since we need to hope that Arizona does not win it. Vancouver is not involved in it and our hated rivals don't win it either. So August 10th is going to be the date of when the draft lottery will be concluded, and whoever wins that gets Alexis Lafreniere. Now, the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs is going to begin on August 11th, and we hope Vancouver makes it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The conference finals is tentatively scheduled for September 8th. So basically, August is going to be the month of the the qualifying games, the round-robin games, the first round, and the second round of the playoffs. They are moving uh, real fast through this uh, playoff format. Then you're going to have the conference finals, which is, I think, going to be a little more traditional in terms of you know timing and schedule because they're going to have most of September to do that. And the Stanley Cup finals is currently scheduled to be start on September 22nd at the latest and end on October 4th at the latest. And now this is where things get a little wonky. There's still a little gray area, if you will, Dan, because shortly after October 4th, Dan, <laughs> is when the offseason can probably begin. Now, the NHL hasn't made a full ruling on this yet, but the current plan is that free agency in terms of unrestricted free agents, when you can re-sign quali- when you have to submit qualifying offers, that's going to be around the first week of October. In fact, it might actually be October 4th or 7 days after the Stanley Cup finals end, whichever is later. Mm-hmm. And that's that's important to note because they announced the NHL draft is going to be held online on October 9th and October 10th. Mm-hmm. So it is entirely possible, Dan, that we could be talking about free agents the same time that NHL players are going to be picking prospects. Mm-hmm. So 
from a hockey content making standpoint, a podcast standpoint, a fan standpoint, we are going to be overloaded in the first half of October of things happening. I mean, August itself uh, is going to be ridiculous for any American sports fan. If you looked at any sort of schedule from the 1st to the 10th, it's basically games continuously from 9 a.m. to about 10 p.m. Eastern. And it's not, you know, it's not just hockey, but there are five to six hockey games a day, which is a ridiculous amount. Like, I'm wondering what the level of injury concern is going to be for these teams. Not just the injury concern, but what about the rink <laughs> conditions? I feel really bad for who has to maintain the rinks because, again, they're playing all the games either in Edmonton and Toronto. It's not like they're using multiple rinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything's locked down to one place at each one. So you're going to have to worry about everybody's uh, health. I, I think the NHL is hoping the training camp will get a lot of the early rust off. And hopefully, you know, with with an exhibition game and maybe that first game, you get more of that rust off. But the ice conditions, I would hate to be the team playing at 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. on a on an ice surface that has already had four to five games. And mind you, if if, the, if you're in the qualifying round, these games absolutely matter. You're playing for your playoff lives. Right. So, you know, you're not just having a nice preseason stroll around the ice. You're playing games that matter right from the puck drop. Mm-hmm. So. You're going to see lots of divots. You're going to see lots of cutting. You're going to see lots of, uh, you know, a lot of wear and tear in a short amount of time here. And this isn't like grass where, you know, grass is going to stay grass at the end of the day here. This is ice. Yeah. Uh, Good luck maintaining those ice surfaces in August, even up in Edmonton and Toronto. They're also saying that training camps for the next season will begin November 17th and the next season will begin December 1st. I thought they were looking more, the initial reports were more that they wanted to start next season with the winter classic on january 1st with like some limited fan presence but it looks like december 1st is their target yeah they want to do 82 games they want to get back to an 82 game format and then we can go back to this draft in june free agency on july 1st like basically get back to the normalcy of the nhl schedule um we'll see if that happens because 82 games from december 1st all the way to may um, or april i should say and then playoffs in may and june good luck Yeah, good luck. It's not going to be easy and they'll need plenty of breaks. And we're going to take one now before we go into the big devil's news of the week, because that's what you come here for. So we'll be right back. All right. Welcome back. And now it's time to get to the piece of news that, you know, we were waiting for for a very long time. And on one count, it was not really any reason to wait. And on the other count, there was a lot of reason to wait. So. We break down the Devils' hirings of Tom Fitzgerald removing his interim tag from the GM position, and also of Lindy Ruff as the 19th head coach in Devils history, which was unsurprisingly met with a lot of disdain from the fan base. But I think, personally, as I've had a few days to step away, I'm less peeved given the situation. But let's start with Fitzgerald, because his hiring was probably the easiest choice they could have made, and the only tough part of it was that it didn't happen sooner. Yeah, and and this is a point I've brought up on this show, I've brought it up on the site, I've brought it up on Twitter, is, okay, you decided to remove the tag. Why couldn't you have done this months ago Mm -hmm. when he was interviewing coaches and making other decisions that you were trusting with? Like, you know, they had the press conference on Friday to formally announce them, and, you know, they had lots of questions for uh, David Blitzer, who attended the call representing ownership, Tom Fitzgerald himself, and Ruff himself. And a lot of the question, one of the early questions for Blitzer was, why now? 
why why we're doing it. And Blitzer went into detail about how they they liked what he did at the trade deadline. They liked how he handled the day-to-day stuff. They liked how he handled things during the pandemic. And they liked how he handled the coaching search. And I'm thinking to myself, you don't trial a person to be your general manager while giving him an opportunity to hire people he should be working for. Mm -hmm. At that point, you need to give him the security of you're the GM. Even if – even if – all it is is you step into the interview and say, hey, coaching candidate, this guy's going to be the GM, but keep that on the DL interview as if he's going to be your boss. Right, exactly. And it doesn't it may have led to some confusion among the candidates that I mean, we learned I don't think there's any concrete proof of this in general. So the speculation is that, you know, Laviolette priced himself out at the interview and Gallant wasn't interested in the job. Would that have anything to do with the process by which Devils were conducting interviews? Only they would know, but maybe, maybe that contributed. But given those two names that are out, Lindy Ruff appears as a coaching option after that. And it seems like he might have been a late interview as well. And there may have been some uh, communication with the Rangers in terms of them still being part of the return to play and him still having duties as their defensive bench coach. Well, actually, we got some clarification on that on Friday. At, uh, oh, no, I'm the saying in the initial negotiation. Like, now we know that he's stepping down oh, yeah. from the Rangers effective immediately. Oh, yes. Yes, he is. He he is being replaced by Gord Murphy from Hartford. Um, no, the Rangers granted permission, um, which totally makes sense because he was terrible as a defensive head coach. The Rangers' defensive metrics went in the exact opposite direction. So for all the talk about, oh, you know, he liked talking to Tony D and he liked talking to Adam Fox and their young players on the rise. And it's like, yeah, but um, he didn't do the job he was hired to do very well. Well, Um, what this hire represents is something that I think a lot of people didn't realize that they were okay with in that the last hire was someone with no NHL experience and, right. you know, it took years to even sniff the playoffs and then nothing close after that. But this is someone with pretty much all the NHL experience. This is someone with the six most wins in league history. This is someone who has taken multiple teams um, to substantial playoff runs, but also, you know, had his issues in his recent track record as a defensive coach. So overall, I mean... Knowing that those two options may have had reasons why they made themselves unavailable, I'm fine with it. Well, when it happened, I was disappointed and I still feel disappointed about it. So I might as well touch on this, you know, now that the press conference was held and, you know, everybody's had time to think about it. I agree that, you know, yes, in Dallas, Ruff was very much an offensive head coach, very high event and play was going in the right direction. And I understand he likes working with young players and talking to them. And, you know, I, I can understand how he had a hand in the rise of Tyler Seguin and Jamie Benn and players of his ilk. But I'm also of the opinion that, you know, eventually your talent where it wins out. And, you know, you could you could have had another coach in, instead of Ruff in Dallas. And I still think guys like Seguin and Benn would, would be still very, very good hockey players. Um, well, the problem in know. Dallas was that he was they were the second highest scoring team in the league and had like an 890 collective save percentage. Well, exactly. Yeah. The, you know, the, the goaltending, you know, undercut him significantly. And that's and not something Ruff we're not a, familiar with. <laughs> no, we're not. And, and just as importantly, Ruff is not a goalie coach. Right. And, you know, Ruff doesn't stop pucks. You know, goalies didn't do their job and the goalie coach didn't do their job. You know, simple as uh, blame management. But, um, you know, the big the big red flag for me is one. He in his most recent job that he was hired to do, which 
I will argue was not a good fit to begin with since he's not a defensive head coach mm-hmm. is that he wasn't very good at it. And, and second in point, and this was something Ruff actually hinted at or not hinted rather, he actually said this at the press conference because um, somebody asked the question, you know, what are you excited going back to being a head coach? When did you know you want to go back and be a head coach? And he said, well, you know, I wanted a break from head coaching because he was a head coach for a very long time in Dallas and in Buffalo prior to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you said, he's six all time in wins. Well, you got to be in the NHL a very long time to be six all times as a head coach in wins. Like he was a head coach for a long, long time. So he he t- he saw the opportunity to be an assistant as a way to take a break from head coaching. But he said he figured that after one season, he'd be fine with going back to being a head coach. I'd like to point out that he was an assistant for three seasons. Yeah. And if the New Jersey Devils weren't talking to him it could have been a fourth (laughs) yeah and Uh, there's a lot of um i think something interesting that he said on the press conference as well and that we've heard from both uh marty biron and kevin weeks who interact with him pretty frequently is that he has been working almost exclusively on shifting his style from more of a taskmaster approach that he had back in buffalo in the 90s to someone that's more conscious of how he speaks to younger players which is this is basically his trial run to see how much of that he's actually learned since this is going to be an extremely young team overall yeah i mean it was an extremely young team under Hines, and it's going to stay an extremely young team like you know you look at the unless tom fitzgerald is going to start spending a lot of a lot of his money on you know veteran free free agents you're going to go into next season with four players on the books over the age of 30 like, yeah, your blue line is, you know, mid 20s. But that's my point is that you don't have a lot of older players on this team. You don't have a lot of experienced players. And the core is effectively built around a 19 year old Jack Hughes, a 21 year old Nico Heischer, a 23 year old Mackenzie Blackwood. And, you know, I guess if you want to throw them in there, a 21 year old Jesper Brat. like they're all well under the age of 25. They're not going to be at that, you know sweet spot year although some statisticians will tell you they're in their sweet spot right now the point is is that yeah you need somebody who's able to handle young players very well and it's good that ruff is saying you know i understand that young players want to know why they're doing what they're doing but you you got to talk to them you got to work with them and and it's great but as a head coach and he even indicated this is as a head coach you don't get to have that time to talk to young players that much so it's like so he he was hired if he was hired primarily to help the young players, but he's not going to be discussing it with them very much. Why not then just hire him as an assistant? But it is what it is. I think it um, is like letting him hire his own staff is going to be interesting to see who he trusts yeah. with these players in this defense, which is why I think that it's very likely that we see Nazardine retained. Um, I, I think especially for the penalty kill, they've been yeah, five, Fitzgerald, top five to 10 in the penalty kill for the last like, no matter what their record was. Yeah, Fitzgerald specifically called out Nazardine as like the best PK coach in the league, and that's still somewhere where they need help in. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't think you need help in your PK, Tom, uh, if you paid attention. It's the one thing they were actually good at. No, but if they are um, good at that, why not keep the one reason that, you know, he's good Well, to have one on could argue. Well, one could argue, I, I, and this is rumor and conjecture, so take this with a grain of salt, Dan, mm-hmm. and everyone else who's listening, is that when Nazardine became the interim head coach, Mike Greer took over as the penalty kill head coach. And if Mike Greer and that penalty kill didn't get worse, it actually was about the same, maybe a little better under mm-hmm. Greer, if I recall correctly. So it begs the question, why pay for Nazardine if you can just keep Greer? Well, especially because Greer played for rough. Yeah, and that's, I guess, another point of, 
I don't want to say discontentment. Like I, I'm not one of those people that says, oh, this is a retread. You can't hire retreads. You always got to look for people who don't have any connections. And that's the only way I will ever respect a coach and hire. You know, if you got no networks and you got no experience with each other, you know, those, those people tire me out. Okay. You know, you know, you got to find players. You got to find the personnel that works best. And if it's somebody, you know, in your network, somebody you played for, somebody, you know, personally, and that that works out, then that's what you do. That being said, you know, I, I don't. I, I don't uh, I haven't had to put it past me that Tom Fitzgerald used to play for Lindy Ruff. And I don't put it past me that when Ruff said, oh, yeah, I know Mike Greer really well. You know, I immediately thought, I think Mike Greer's job is pretty safe unless he says something stupid in the interview. Right. Uh, you know, um, well, I, you know, I don't it's mind very, like, very, the concept as long as of retreads, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So well, let's look at a situation like uh, Barry Trotz, for example. He was in Nashville to varying levels of success for a very, very long time, right? Goes to Washington for a few years. They win the cup and figure it out. But it did take a shift in, you know, I think the lessons that he learned from the other places or from Nashville itself helped him out in relating to Washington. Now he has the Islanders in a really good spot with not necessarily the best roster for where they are now. So maybe it is just like a scene change. But with with Ruff, you know, Buffalo – was good in the 90s they were very good in the late 2000s and then since he's been gone they've been abysmal whereas dallas i would say had a little bit more offensive talent that reflected in what we saw in his time there but obviously the goaltending undid their time or his time in dallas so in new jersey basically what does he have to adjust from his past stints that would make you feel more comfortable with him in charge well first and foremost he needs to get a a completely different assistant head coach to run the defense because we know ruff isn't going to be able to run it and that and and the defense under nazardine slash john hines where nazardine was an assistant and then again as a head coach i think peter horacek took over as an assistant to do a lot of that and the defense was terrible Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know the devils were getting their butts whipped in five on five on the regular under this. So, you know, if Ruff comes comes back and says, Oh, Nazarene's gonna run the defense again, I'm immediately, you know, rolling my eyes and face palming. Um, so he needs a he needs an assistant who better understands this type of defense that they feel that they want to play. And Ruff needs to make sure that guys like Jack Hughes and Nico Heesher and Jesper Bratt, and even to a lesser extent Pavel Zaka are utilized appropriately. And and let me make this clear for everybody listening. Utilizing appropriately does not mean give him 20 minutes and, you know, and free reign to play and make as many mistakes as possible. No. And and Ruff made that clear. It's knowing who they can play well with and putting them to play together. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why Jack Hughes, I think, had a lot of struggles last season wasn't just because, you know, he's an 18 year older um, learning that the NHL is really fast and physical. It's also the fact that he spent way too much time in between Miles Wood and Wayne Simmons, mm-hmm. who you know, we're no disrespect to Mr. Woods and Mr. Simmons, but that combination fit as well as two left feet at the bowling alley. It just did not work. And anybody with, you know, two cents could have figured that out after two, not even two games, maybe even a, a game and a half of that. But that was stuck for several games at a time, partially out of necessity and partially out of, well, John Hines doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> so Ruff, Ruff needs to under, he needs to work with Fitzgerald to get the personnel that would best work with these types of players and understand what type of players they're going to be coming. Cause right now, you know, he, sh- you know, the devils are in this awkward spot where Brat's going to get a brand new deal this, um, 
this uh, coming season. He's an RFA. He shares extension kicks in for next season. So he goes from ELC to 7.25 million a season. Jack Hughes is going into the second season of his ELC. Um, it's important and absolutely critical that you get the most out of these players now before you start having to hand them massive contracts. And then you start wondering, you know, do you have the money to get the personnel that you need? You need to get that personnel now. Mm-hmm. And so if it's not going to be Paul Mary and if it's not going to be goose, Tom Fitzgerald is going to have to bite the bullet and make some, make some deals that people may not want him to make. Mm-hmm. Likewise, he may need to look at his goaltending and say, look, Corey, you're not, you just don't have it anymore. We're just going to eat your, bury your cap hit in Binghamton until somebody wants to take pity on you and take your cap hit. And we'll pay Blackwood a good amount of money, but I got to get a solid second option or a potential 1A option for Blackwood in case Blackwood blows up. And Fitzgerald, and I keep saying Fitzgerald because Ruff is going to have to communicate to Fitzgerald who he needs, but Fitzgerald needs to be the one to go out and get these players and do so. And I, I guess that's the other point on why I'm a little dis, a little disappointed about the decisions made here is because Fitz, my one concern about Fitzgerald as a whole is that as, as experience and as much as people were talking him up to be a future GM, he's effective. He was Ray Shero's assistant for such a long time that I almost question, are we going to get Ray Shero 2.0 where the deals are going to look great on paper, but when they fall apart, it's like, well, now what? I, I hope not. And I hope that's something I hope where <laughs> the deals – you know, they look great on paper, but I think a lot of the issues may have been deeper than that when these players actually arrived. I think adding a whole mess of new players to a system that already wasn't really working was something that Ruff, Ruff's going to implement something ideally entirely new. And I'm wondering how much of it is you know, going to be his system and how much of it is going to be him just being like, yeah, we'll do what the analytics guys say. Because that's another interesting factor of this that Brooks actually talked about in that Ruff was pretty, you know, unremarkable from analytical perspectives and among analytical circles, yet supposedly the devil's analytics department runs a lot of their operations. So I'm wondering, is he acting like kind of a puppet to them in some way, or is he going to have to adjust his style based on what he's being told from them, or is he just going to do things his way? And the department basically said, we're focusing on the personality and experience aspect of things. Right. And on top of that, you know, are the how much is are they going to be influencing Tom Fitzgerald's decisions? Mm-hmm. Like, is Tom Fitzgerald going to be basically doing whatever Dan McKinnon, Kate Madigan, Matt Cain and Tyler Dello tell him to do? Mm-hmm. Now, granted, from an anal- you need to use anal- your analytics department like a t- like a tool like any other business would. You know, you need to be guided by your metrics. If your business metrics are telling you your business is failing, then you need to make adjustments. Simple as. But you can't let them necessarily run the business, if that makes any sense. Yeah, like no, they it does. They're always going to be in a position to make every decision. I mean, that's, you know, I, I kind of find it laughable that, you know, Ruff is a – I really hope it's not the case because I can't imagine anybody wants to be a head coach, whether it's Lindy Ruff, Gerard Gallant, Peter Lavalette, some guy off the street. You know, if you're a head coach, you need to be the head coach. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> the, the job – uh, requires you to be able to make decisions on your own and make calls on, you know, in games, before games, in intermission, that based on your experiences and based on what you understand to be happening. That's that's the position. If it's just going to be on whatever somebody higher up is going to tell you, then you might as well say, let's save, let's save some money and make you the head coach. And, you know, 
you know, I will also point out that teams have access to different analytics than what you and I may have. Like we can go to natural stat trick. We can pay the younger twins five bucks to view their crummy war stat. You know, we can go to we can we can look at nice little graphs from uh, Dr. Micah Blake McCurdy that show that Lindy Ruff doesn't really have much of a positive or negative impact on his teams. He's literally a guy behind the bench who's kind of there, which is another point of concern. But I'll that's aside. The point is, is that the NHL teams have accesses to different data sets and therefore have different conclusions. So it's entirely possible the analytics people may turn around and say, no, this actually rough is literally the best hire we can have. And here's reasons A, B, and C, and you don't have access to A, B, and C, and that's why you don't understand. So that's why we get paid and you don't. Mm-hmm. Fine. Fair. If that's the case. At the end of the day here, Dan, as, you know, as much as I wanted Gallant or preferred Laviolette over um, rough and, um, you know, I'm not going to say rough was worse than, say, Nazardine, because that's not true. And or I Stevens, honestly don't really. Yeah. Or John Stevens. And and supposedly some other candidates were they haven't been named, but there were some other guys that, that were in the discussion here. It was, I think the total number was eight. From what I understand, we only know about five of the names mm. or so. Regardless, um, you know, if it works out. Then I want to write the post that says I was wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. I want to be wrong. Like, I'm not I am not going to lie. I'm not going to front, as the kids say, you know, if I'm willing, you know, I'm willing to be wrong about this. If Ruff turns around and makes this team actually decent in five on five and has them play fast and play to their offensive sensibilities that the talent suggests they totally have. And Fitzgerald makes the right moves to make the team better going forward. I'm not saying they have to make the playoffs in 2021. Um, I'm glad that David Blitzer made it clear to say that's not what we're expecting, but we are expecting the players to tell us when they're ready to go. And we want them to tell us when we're ready to go fairly soon. I want to see improvement. I want to be able to say this team's heading in the right direction for next season. And, you know, in terms of and if that happens, I will happy to be wrong. OK, yeah. But in terms of on ice, uh, what do you expect to change from a positive perspective with rough behind the bench? Well, the big thing he kept talking about was speed. Now, he did he did talk about. Um, you know, he wants to play attacking and he wants to play possession hockey, but he also wants a passion for defense, basically coach speak. But the one thing he kept hinting on was speed, speed, speed. And that actually actually aligns with a lot of this roster. Since you look at the roster, you know, Miles Wood is only fast going in a straight line, but he's fast. Nikita Gusev is pretty quick. Nobody would call Kyle Palmieri slow. He sure is pretty quick. Hughes is fast. Um, if you give Michael McLeod a chance, he's pretty swift as well. Jesper Broad is swift. The defense is actually pretty swift as well. You don't really have a lot of guys on this blue line outside of maybe, maybe Frederick Clayson, but who knows if he's going to be re-signed. And whatever P.K. Subban's back allows him to do, um, you know, these guys move pretty well. This, this is a very mobile team, even as bad as they were last season. So I fully expect Ruff to lean on that and try to put in systems and put in breakouts and put in transitional concepts that emphasize their speed. You know, if that, uh, you know, we could see a lot more counterattacking hockey from the devils where they're going to try to, um, you know, catch you on the break, you know, from, from defense transitioning quickly, quickly into offense. I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing a two man four check more often since they have the speed to go, you know, get in and also get back. Um, I think a lot of it's going to depend on who Fitzgerald goes out and gets this offseason. I don't think we're going to see the devil sit at like 67 or rather $70 million on, on the cap, mm-hmm. you know, as flat as it is. I think you're going to see some names brought in. So, 
you know, I, 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 that I'm anticipating at least a faster playing team. Now, whether or not they're going to finally be a 50% Corsi team for the first time since Lou Lamarillo was GM, you know, that's still up in the air. I think that a lot of that's going to have to depend on the personnel. I think they really do need to move on from the guy, from the Mirko Mueller's and the Connor Carrick's. Yeah, the Devils gave them their chances, but it's time to move on for them. It's time to move on from the Kevin Rooney's and the John Hayden's, mm-hmm. get some other guys some chances. Basically, years ago, the the buzz, the catchphrase was fast attacking supportive. I wouldn't be surprised if Ruff and Fitzgerald tried to continue that given who's in the system and given who they have on the roster. Yeah, and that's th- something that it seems like they're crying out to play this more attacking style. It seems like that's something they were way more suited to and Another thing that has to change is the emphasis on actually finishing off their opportunities, something that they've long had trouble with, especially under the Heinz era. And I don't know if it was something that was directly related to him or something that they weren't emphasizing necessarily in skills practices or I don't know, but they need like target practice for sure. Oh, absolutely. And that goes back to what I was saying about, you know, 50 percent Corsi. Like there's only two things you can really do when you're not scoring a lot of goals, Dan. You can either get magically better at shooting the puck, which – you know, based on the last 10 or so years of analytics that we have, you really can't influence your own shooting percentage. Not everybody can turn into Ilya Kovalchuk or Alex Tanga. You just can't force it. So what do you do? You take the Zach Parise or Alex Ovechkin approach and increase your volume. Now, granted, you're not going to shoot 500 pucks as a player, but you know what? Let's let's use Blake Coleman as an example because he's a perfect example of this concept. Blake Coleman was a fantastic, you know, just shot the puck a ton last season. And lo and behold, he scored he scored some goals that he otherwise wouldn't have scored if he was playing more like he did two years ago mm-hmm. or two years prior to the season. Now, I'm not again, I'm not saying that all the players need to you know go out there and shoot on sight. But a guy like Pavel Zaka or Miles Wood can only help themselves if they decide to just take some more chances of just firing the puck, take some initiative when they have possession in a good location to shoot from. In Miles Wood's case, he needs to be more dis, you know, judicious about where he shoots from because he shoots from literally everywhere. And, of course, his shots very rarely go in. Zaka actually gets himself into good positions. He just needs to fire the damn thing when he has it. Right. <laughs> and he's in those positions. And, you know, they could use some more players like Paul Mary where they're more shoot-first players than necessarily pass-first players. Where, guy, I, I'm not worried about Hughes and Heischer and Brat because I think those guys are going to have the um, – they have the skill sets, and more importantly, with Ruff and, and any other coach, I would hope, you know, they would get get that conversation to sit down and say, look, the best playmakers know when to shoot. Mm-hmm. And we, we can actually see – we saw sparks of this from Brat, from Heischer, from Hughes that uh, of that concept. So it's also just translating that downstream in the roster to the Miles Woods, the Pavel Zakas, um, even to the defensemen, you know. I would actually argue the reverse. I would say, look, Subban, Butcher, Severson, you guys got nice shots here, but you're 50 feet away from the net. (laughs) You know, stop, stop. Yes, I understand the big slap shots, big, it's fun. If it goes in, everybody goes, woo, you know, it's like, you know, it it pops the crowd. But there's a reason why those shots are like two to three (laughs) percent, you know, in terms of success. Um, You know, it doesn't matter if you got the screen or or bodies in front, you know, you got to. You got to be a little more judicious and pick your spots a little bit more, you know, facilitate play more so than just bomb away. Even if 10, there's a reason why defense, other teams are letting you have like 15 feet around you. They know that that shot's not going to go in 95% of the time. So work it more down low and work those cycles, work plays off the half boards more often. So honestly, that's really the, in my view, the real solution here is 
stop having to play defense so much so you get more offensive opportunities, yeah. you know, tilt the ice your way. And then when you're in their way, bomb away, you know, get the, get the, get the puck. If you're below the circles and you got a good angle on the goalie, take the chance, you know, unless you know your, your teammate is wide open on the flank or you know that the goalie is already squared up and has stared you down for three seconds. Fine. Move it around, but bomb away a little bit more, you know, play a little looser and you'll get those goals that Coleman was scoring that he otherwise wasn't scoring. Do you think that having rough there adds a little bit of gravitas to those things, given his breadth of experience in the league that maybe John Hines didn't necessarily have? I think so. I think, well, let me, let me rephrase it. I'd like to think so. Mm -hmm. For a guy like, say, Paul Mary, um, guys who or, or Subban, or even Severson, I would say, you know, they, they've been around the league long enough to say, OK, this is Lindy Ruff talking to me. Mm -hmm. Now, if I'm Jack Hughes, Nico Heischer, even Nikita Gusev, who's a little older, but he's still new from an NHL standpoint, they may not fully understand who Ruff is. And it's going to take some time for Ruff to establish, you know, hey, I've been in the NHL for over, you know, 20 years. You know, you should listen to what I say. And that's that's one of the points Ruff kept hitting on in the press conference, which is you got to be willing to explain why you got to do it. You know, it's not that, hey, I want you to do this. It's here's why you got to do this. And it's more than just because I said so. Like you have to say you're doing this because this will help the team win more games. Right. Or, this will help you get more goals or this will this will make sure you don't get blindsided by Tom Wilson. OK, that's a bad example. Everybody gets blindsided by Tom Wilson, but you don't get blindsided by Lars Eller. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, the point is, is that I, I'd like to think the next several weeks now that the Devils have a GM and they have a coach and they have some dates to work towards in terms of free agency, in terms of the draft. Um, they will be able to take their time via Zoom, of course, to sit down with the players and explain, this is where I'm coming from. This is my experience. Here's what I can tell you. If you do this, you know, you'll turn, you, you know, Seguin did this, Ben did this, Derek Waugh did this, Jason Pominville did this. You know, these are guys who went on to have long, successful NHL careers. I'm not saying you're going to be like them, but if you do this, you will have more success than if you were just doing things your way. Yeah, and running around willy-nilly and making mistakes in the neutral zone, and that's something that uh, oh yeah, I, I think <laughs> when you have someone that's a little bit closer to the players in terms of experience, they see those mistakes and they think, oh, those will correct themselves rather than, you know, let's get down to the point here and let's really look at why you're doing these things and what's wrong with them. So. I do appreciate the experience that he brings to the table, but yeah, you're, I mean, I'm apprehensive for the same reasons as you. It wasn't certainly the ideal hire in my eyes, but it probably wasn't the worst direction they could have gone. And no. we won't know anything for sure until the games actually start. Exactly. And there's going to be a long time before then. So there's plenty of times to have those zoom conversations. We'll see later in the fall, whether or not the seven teams that aren't returning to play, whether or not they're going to do any, uh, on ice workouts in their home arenas or if they're going to do some sort of exhibition series or something. I'd like to think that for the seven teams that are going to be sitting or that, that aren't going to be playing games potentially to December and not having training camp until November, that between now and July and then somebody gets on the ice and does something here. Because, you know, if you think if you think you're the teams returning to play are going to be rusty for games in August, imagine the teams that have been literally idle since March, how they're going to be. Mm -hmm. So. I'm hoping that there's going to be some sort of on ice activity where Ruff can actually get these guys drilling, get these guys in practice, get their staff together and um, 
get going, so to speak. So they they hit the ground running in training camp. Yeah, and that's something that you know he comes with years of experience getting people up to speed for training camp, getting people ready for the season. That's that's one thing I'm not concerned about at all when it comes to starting next season. I think they'll be as ready as they can be. Like this is a pretty wide berth, and while his initial team meetings may have to happen over Zoom. Eventually, they'll be able to get back to the rink, I would say, well before December 1st. So he'll have plenty of time to implement whatever systems he needs to with um, no major concern about offseason stuff until October. So he does have the playoff months and most of September to start implementing what he wants to do. Yep. All right. And I guess that brings us to the end of this episode. We'll talk more about, you know, now that we have a GM and coach in place, what specific moves they can make in this offseason that would help strengthen Devils. But we'll save that for another episode for now. I mean, do you have anything else to add? We covered the CBA. We covered the new GM, new coach. Well, we're going to have a lot more to talk about, um, depending on what happens over the next several months. So I'm sure once assistant coaches get decided upon, I'm sure when we get a little closer to it, we're going to talk more about the draft now that we have some draft dates, which is going to be very, very weird because some of the leagues in Europe and I think the major junior leagues are planning to play their seasons normally. So we're going to have a rare case of the draft guys getting drafted and they have played weeks into their season already. So, um, and on top of that, now teams like New Jersey, they're going to have, um, Four more, um, not four more months, um, many more months to overthink their draft situation <laughs> and start and, and hope you don't go to the draft and realize, OK, um, you know, this guy that only scored 20 points, but he's six foot four and, you know, he, he smiled at me and the scouts. So, you know, I want to pick him at 11. Um, no, they're not going to do that. But they're going to be there. There's a real real concern over overthinking your, your prospects. And of course, if somebody gets hot at their season or gets cold, then it's going to it could impact that. And it's, it, we live in interesting times, Dan. Oh, definitely. As, we just live in interesting times. Yeah. And unfortunately today, there's nothing we can do about that or talk about continuing um, the, the draft scouting process. But it is interesting to know that they might significantly change up their order, depending on how they start their seasons. Absolutely. All right, so that's been it for this episode of Garden State of Hockey. This one was packed with new stuff. We have a lot of exciting announcements, both from a Devils perspective and from a league perspective. So hopefully you were uh, able to stay abreast of all of those. And if not, you've listened through and have a pretty good understanding of why the NHL was able to negotiate such a long uh, labor agreement, unlike they had in the past three instances. But that all being said, um, we'll we'll have, like I said, we'll have more speculation on who the Devils might bring in to fit some of these systems, who might be available, and we'll have a better idea of what the picture looks like. One last point to clarify is that despite the NHL's language saying that statistics for the play-in round will be counted as playoffs, for the purpose of conditional picks, they count as regular season. So a team has to win the play-in round for a conditional pick that has a playoff condition attached in it to hold, which is looking at that Vancouver pick. And also, there are no longer conditional picks allowed for players, um, depending on a player re-signing with a certain team. Right. So just as we knew, Wes, back in the end of May, if you want the 2020 first rounder from Vancouver, you need them to beat Minnesota. Simple as. <laughs> All right. So fingers crossed we're rooting for a Nashville win with an Arizona lottery loss and a Vancouver win 
to maximize the Devils first round this year. But until any of that happens, that's been our time at All About the Jersey. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week.